0: This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions, and where we try to have compassionate and compelling conversations about challenging subjects. My name is Stephen Bradford Long. All right, well, today I am speaking with David Gushy. David Gushy is considered one of the most significant Christian ethicists, at least within American Christianity. And I have some history with David Gushy, with his writing, that I want to highlight here at the beginning. His book, uh, Changing Our Mind, way back in, I think it was 2013 or 2014, was just an enormous influence on me, in which he argued that the church, the Christian world, should change its collective mind on acceptance of LGBTQ people. So that book was... An enormous influence on me in how it opened my horizons as a gay person to a broader world, to a broader moral universe where I could have the exact same rights and freedoms as everyone else. I could engage in the same sort of relationship that everyone else could have suddenly, and I suddenly had a theological framework for doing that. Huge, huge, huge moment for me reading that book. And even though I am no longer a Christian, uh, my enormous respect for David Gushy has persisted. I have admired his integrity and his scholarship over the years— and his willingness to call his own people out, his willingness to confront his own community when he believes they're going wrong. So I have maintained my enormous respect for David Gushy over the years, and I am delighted to talk to him today. Before we get to that, though, I have to shout out my amazing subscribers on Substack. I know that a huge number of you godless degenerates listen to this show but you're not yet subscribed on Substack. How dare you? It literally only takes two seconds. If you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever, then don't even hit pause. Just go to the link in the show notes or type in your... Uh, search bar sacredtension.substack.com and subscribe. And then I will appear in your inbox for the rest of your life like I'm Scientology. You will never get rid of me. I will be like that slasher movie villain who breaks down your door. No matter how many times you hit him in the face with a plank, he will always come back and appear in your inbox yelling at you about philosophy. Now, if you love my work and want to support it, if you find yourself looking forward to a podcast every two weeks or to uh, a blog post every week, then please consider becoming a paying subscriber. Being a paying subscriber really does keep the lights on here at Sacred Tension HQ. It keeps my six cats fed and it keeps me from having to do horrible, horrible, horrible things like collecting my Maine Coon's fur off of the curtains and spinning it into a yarn and then having to knit disgusting sweaters and selling them on Etsy. And you don't want that life for me and I don't want that life for me. So please, to help me avoid this terrible fate, go to sacredtension.com forward slash. Oh, no, yes, no, that, uh, yes. Sacredtension.substack. Com. All right. With all of that out of the way, David Gushy, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Stephen. Uh, that was one of the most compelling slash terrifying intros to somebody's content that I've ever heard. So that's awesome. That's- <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm so glad. All right. So you have a fantastic new book out called uh, Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies. Once again, you know, it, it's Incredibly well written, and it reminds me of the previous book that I mentioned in the intro, "Changing Our Mind," where it is succinct and it's kind of a voice of conscience. I mean, it's it's a very it's well argued and simple, and I love it. So, what is the basis behind this, or what what's the story behind this book? What happened? To make you want to write this book,
1: um, let me not go any further without thanking you for your kind comments about changing our mind. Uh, I did not know that, and uh, I'm I'm really pleased. Uh, you know, I saw on the New Yorker this weekend an article that referenced Changing Our Mind by um, It's 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 about what it's like to be rejected by one's own parents, and And then somehow changing our mind helped to change the dynamics in that family. And that was in the New Yorker this weekend. So Mm. uh, I can send you that information if you want to link to it. Yes,
0: please. Yes, please. um,
1: So anyway, I'm grateful. Grateful. Glad to hear that. Uh, I guess I've been a dissident, increasingly a dissident within uh, the dominant American religious community for a while. And what, what, you know motivated this particular book was the obvious role of many, many Christians, evangelical, fundamentalist, uh, some other Christians, as well as a lot of non-Christians, uh, in supporting Donald Trump all the way through to the to the insurrection of January 6, 2021, and to continue to provide uh, an unshakable base for him running, God help us, running again for president right now he could not be where he is if it were not for the support of a group of christians who i describe as having embraced authoritarian reactionary politics in the name of christ and so i would say i was struck just over the head with one of those planks you talked about um watching the whole trump presidency and then that this villain would still be in the picture now, four years later, that it, he is indeed like a villain in one of those horror movies who you think is done and, and keeps coming back. But he would not keep coming back if it we're not for the support of a lot of Christians all around where you live and all around where I live and all around the country. And I, I write to understand what it is that, that motivates that kind of support and in doing so i discovered that it's a it's not just an american phenomenon it's a it's a, it's a global phenomenon for a certain kind of christians and di- uh, christian in different places and also to to make a voice of conscience for a different kind of christian approach to to the world and to politics yeah
0: and you know i really wanted to have you on the show because i think it's really important for us to for us meaning people people like me who are concerned non-theists but who are interested in multiculturalism and pluralism and democracy and genuine liberalism to really bolster and support the voices of religious people who are counteracting illiberalism within their own communities, I think that's super important. In your book, you you start with some definitions and also kind of the seed for the discontent within some parts of Christianity regarding democracy. So talk about, I think the term you have here is, is it thin democracy? Is that the correct term so so talk about thin democracy what so okay let's order our questions here what is democracy and what is thin democracy
1: well you don't even know you need to define democracy until you discover it uh being challenged but basically here's a definition of democracy um bruce russer yale university political scientist a democracy is a political system in which nearly everyone can vote, elections are freely contested, the chief executive is chosen by popular vote or by an elected parliament, and civil rights and civil liberties are substantially guaranteed. And then there's a more elaborate definition that that I, I try, but not to belabor it, but the idea is a democracy exists when the people are understood to be the source of government serving the well-being of the people is the purpose of government. And the means by which government is undertaken is is the will of the people. But it's not pure will because it is constrained by the rule of law. So I say a a democracy is rule of the people under the rule of law.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So you have... The contrast is with previous and in still other places uh, still existing today the rule of one person as in a dictatorship or the rule of a ruling family as in a monarchy or the rule of a small group of powerful families, you might call that an oligarchy, in which you might say the government is understood as belonging to the guy at the top and the people have exactly as many rights and as much voice as the as the dictator or the person at the top or the families at the top allow. In a democracy, um, The power has been wrestled from the hands of the one and the few and has gone into the hands of of the people as a whole who agree together to create a constitution and then rules that fit with the constitution and to set up a structure for governing themselves. Um, Rule of the people under the rule of law. It's quite an achievement to get to a democracy because the starting point historically has been, you know, the rule of a monarch or a king or a or a dictator or an autocrat of some type, and um, it's also we now know it's possible to lose a democracy even once you have it, um, because it can erode or be or be taken back. The roots of democratic theory in the West, really, there's two main uh, roots. One is dissenting Christians to regimes that were. Church-state theocracies, right? You know, Christians after the Reformation, especially, um, but even before, but but especially after the Reformation. Once you have the Protestant-Catholic split, um, and then you have more and more Protestant groups, and you have the phenomenon of people killing each other, uh, and the state killing heretics and dissenters in the name of God and country. And you have, so in the, as early as the 16th century and definitely by the 17th century, you have Christians saying, you know what? We need freedom to believe what we really believe. We need to not have the state kill us for believing what we believe. And actually for that matter, the state needs to not be in the business of killing anybody for believing what they believe. Um, and the government needs to be in the hands of more and more of the people maybe even all of the people to determine what is best for all of the people instead of just for some of the people. In other words, so the the first origin of Western democracy was dissenting religious communities, beginning in England. But then then there were also political philosophers like John Locke, who said, who, who developed theories of government that also emerged from the people. And this was late 17th century. And the idea that That basically government is a social compact or contract arrived at by people who just mainly want to be left alone they want to be able to do their life and all they want government to do is to secure them from uh you know people who would attack their homes and property and their lives and so this was the beginning of liberal democratic theory you could also call it libertarian democratic theory very limited government mainly for security but but the the revolution there is that this is something that the people agree to. Not There's not a king involved. The, the people create a system to secure their own rights. So this is sometimes called thin liberal democracy because there's not much of a vision for what that government should do other than basically securing people's individual rights.
0: Or what society what what a vi- a vision for society or a direction for culture or society all that kind of stuff. Right. So, there's not
1: much of a vision for that. It's just not there.
0: None none at all. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Right. Except for you know, I mean, maybe a vague notion of the common good, but the common good is is kind of o- overly understood as about uh, you know, robbers are not going to be able to break into our house without there being a criminal justice system to stop them and and, and so on. It's really about Personal liberty and and protection of of property, it also was about protection of property rights in the emerging capitalism of the seventeenth and eighteenth century. Right? Okay. So the seed, one seed of um of where we find ourselves is that there have always been people who considered this understanding of government to be too thin, um, not very inspiring, lacking a moral center, or lacking a theological vision, and the idea being that we need more of a of a vision of the good for people. And you have to have a shared understanding of the good for a community to actually hold together. Um, and you also have, now you, let's put a Christian spin on this, you have always had Christians who have been uneasy about the movement towards democracy because of, you might say, the chaos of freedom because of pluralism, because, you know, people might get elected who don't believe what we believe. The society might develop in a direction that we don't really like. When you had a a marriage between church and state, between king and bishop, you might say, or king and church to set together the direction of the country, you you might say that you had a church-state alliance to impose a certain kind of vision. After the democratic, revolutions of the 18th century, especially, and then in the 19th century, that alliance between church and state to set a certain kind of vision is uh, abandoned. Hmm. Um, In some cases, violently abandoned, like in the French Revolution, they didn't, I mean, you know, we don't want no stinking, uh, you know, cardinal, bishop, or pope telling us what to do. It was a secular revolution. In the U.S., it was different. It was more of a, um, okay, we're going to separate church and state. But we're not going to allow the state to harass the church. The churches are going to be free agents to do what they want, but the state is not going to endorse any religion. I think it was an ingenious solution. Yes, but but then and now, there have been Christians who wanted more or other than that.
0: A, a question about that. So, yeah. I I regularly hear like these two narratives, and I'm. Reminded of the quote by G.K. Chesterton where he says, Christianity has been accused of the exact opposite things. It has been too violent and too peaceful, too, you know, pro women, too anti women, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I, I regularly hear these two narratives. One narrative is that democracy and kind of libertarian liberalism is. Fundamentally Christian to its core, and that it was Christians who invented this thing, and that it was the the and that we wouldn't have democracy if it weren't for Christianity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and that it's it's a fundamentally Christian institution, and that even you know the American Constitution is like a fundamentally Christian document in in that way that it can like trace its lineage it can trace its dna to these core christian and jewish ideas and then there's another narrative which is that christianity is to its core authoritarian and and that it has really only been the forces of enlightenment being foisted upon christianity forcing it to reform and that there was great resistance to that. because the theology is that Christ is Lord, Christ is King. The, and th- there's this absolute power vested in the person of Christ and that the earthly kingdoms should reflect that. And so it was only because of secularization. It was only because of in, in the Enlightenment that intellectually, curtailed and pushed back on the power of the church and ultimately liberalized it. Which of those narratives is true or are neither true?
1: Um, They're both true. Okay. Uh, um, They're both true, but it depends on what version of the church we're talking about. Mm. Because Christianity is not just one thing. Yes. There are different versions of Christianity. That's really, really important. Any religion has different strands, uh, different um, power centers, different ways of understanding itself, right? And um, I think it's fair to say that majoritarian Christianity, like Catholicism, where the Catholic Church was dominant,
0: mm.
1: like in, in France um, or Italy, um, or Protestantism, where the Protestant churches were dominant, or orthodoxy in the east where the were the you know where the orthodox churches were dominant the majoritarian churches that had had a, a role of established power had had a much harder time accepting losing that power and the authoritarianism of some of those structures together with the loss of social and cultural power there's also a lot of economic losses too um made it very difficult for the majoritarian established churches of Europe to accept their losses and to accept democracy and this is documented you can see it all over Europe but the dissenting churches the persecuted churches the Baptists the Anabaptists the Quakers for example who were persecuted by everybody right persecuted by the catholics persecuted by the by the anglicans persecuted by the lutherans persecuted by the calvinists they knew in their bones that that authoritarian state christianity was a bad idea so these people came in fairly large numbers to the u.s to the colonial u.s and helped to create the ethos that gave birth to our revolution here Mm. and they helped to create the demand for separation of church and state and the disestablishment of religion that made its way into the first amendment. Hmm. It mm-hmm. says in the first amendment, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And for example, the Baptist of Virginia said to Thomas Jefferson, we will not support or ask our people to support ratification unless this is in it. Okay. So that is an example of Christians demanding democracy at least understood to be, you know, democracy as it existed in 1789, right? But there were other Christians. For example, the Anglicans had a hard time giving up established power, and we're not so sure about all of that, right? And mm. um, the Puritans in New England um, had a, had a different kind of vision.
0: Hmm. Yeah, you know it, and and your point about thin democracy, I feel like. This is the first time. I mean, reading your book is the first time that this point has actually landed for me, where I am very much—I have very much like a libertarian ethos. I'm not politically libertarian, but just you know, kind of a, a, a libertarian ethos. And I'm, and I think I'm intuitively minimalist in in the way that you describe thin democracy being. And I've never quite grasped the anxiety that people have about that until I read your book. And I've had these conversations with a lot of people, and, and actually people can listen to these conversations on the show, my Sibling Rivalry series with my conservative Christian sister, who is wonderful. And we get into fist fights on the show, and it's a fun time for everyone. But this is, this is a thing that— Eli has brought up time and again, and it just never landed for me. It, it, it maybe I needed to have it explained to me by someone like you, but I I never quite got the anxiety over a a culture and government and et cetera, et cetera, a country that has only the necessary protections from imposition but no guiding narrative or ethos or morality or or whatever the case may be that keeps that society functioning and together now i'm still a pluralist i'm still i'm i'm still you know i'm a basically a secular humanist and how I think about the world, but suddenly I get it. Suddenly I can empathize with the real fear that if that's all we have, if all we have is a negative vision for humanity, which is just kind of a, a, a bare, minimum of here are the ways you cannot be imposed upon suddenly I get the fear that that is not enough for society and if and if I'm hearing you correctly, a lot of the a lot of the the attacks on democracy from Christianity are rooted in that fear. am I right about that?
1: Yeah. So let me, let me tell the story this way. Um, I really appreciate how you're digging into the, I mean, a really important theme in this book. So there were always people concerned that the John Locke liberal libertarian vision was too thin, that it was not enough of a basis to build a society. Hmm. Um, But uh, one thing I say in the book is, uh, I quote a guy who says, government is one thing, culture is something else. So the government maybe can be really minimalist if you have some broadly shared values in culture that don't have to be enforced by the government because the people hold them themselves. Um, And so like lots of people are in church. If they're not in church, they still have some of those values like uh, you know, honesty or integrity or love your neighbor or something, right? And so the government is not going to mandate that, but the culture is going to teach that parents are going to teach that to their children so it isn't a value free zone it's just it's not really the government's job to advance the values right okay so so let's say we tell the story that that you have a broadly shared christian cultural ethos judeo christian if you want um through the early 1960s and then and then you say that and so fairly minimal government intervention or it's it's it doesn't have to be much involved because the culture is constantly replicating that um and then the, the everything that happens in the 1960s uh clearly ends any kind of cultural hegemony for that vision with,
0: okay with like the sexual revolution and everything the hippie right? the, the yeah just the whole whole thing the whole yep. thing okay whole thing.
1: But okay and so then so and And then the Supreme Court starts making some decisions because people start bringing some cases that indicate that those church-state boundary lines had not been really enforced the way that they were supposed to be. And so you have principals having everybody say the Lord's Prayer in a public school, and the Supreme Court says, no, you can't do that. Uh, And and so people, conservative Christians, start saying, oh, the government is turning against our values. Okay, so you had that concern. Worry about the Supreme Court goes back to the early 60s. At least that, but then you also have the much messier, much less defensible white reaction to the civil rights movement and the and the integration of the schools. Yes, and you, and you have patriarchal reaction to the women's movement, giving women better opportunities in life. And patriarchy is a much debatable value. I can I'm strongly against it, right? So, but patriarchy is challenged by the women's movement. Um, The sexual revolution challenges, among other things, the control of parents over the activity of their children, as well as the monogamous marital heterosexual norm. Right. Um, And you have mass immigration from from uh, the non-European countries opened up after the mid 60s. So you have issues of ethnicity and immigration get on the table. And then you have the Vietnam War and, and all the protests, you know, against the government and the loss of confidence in the government. And you discover that part of what held people together was a shared confidence in their government and a patriotism, and that gets shattered too. Mm. Um, and the drug culture and everything, right? So, um, so at that point, if there had been a shared narrative, well, of course, that shared narrative was always flawed because it included the subjugation of African-American people, and it included a lot of other people being subjugated too. But it was a combination of a shared Christian narrative and a power structure dominated by white Christian men. Both of them were shattered in the 60s. And democracy, here's my story, democracy, because it was functioning decently well, it ratified the growing pluralism of values and pluralism of people. So now you would have atheists sometimes being elected to office, or you would have women becoming governors and, and uh, senators, and. And uh, uh, open acceptance of gay relationships and and black people being elected to major positions of office. And so I think for white Christian reactionary people, it's a combination of the loss of a dominant position in culture and the loss of a cultural narrative that kept them feeling fairly comfortable in America. It's both mm-hmm. it's all mingled in there together. So so part of the anti-democratic movement is by god democracy is producing results that we think are awful like abortion on abortion being legal and um gay people being allowed to be married and barack obama being allowed to be president uh and um and all these cultural changes that that we don't like it's all of that mixed together and the and the reaction is we need to reclaim this culture we need to reclaim this government and if democracy doesn't work we may not we may not have to wait on democracy we may need to go around democracy that is where i think the authoritarian reactionary christian right is at this moment
0: okay so seeing what they consider the moral breakdown in society as a direct result of democracy as a direct result of liberalism. And what and, and is that right? Is that right? Well,
1: it's like uh, the way I would say it is the culture changed
0: okay. first. OK.
1: And and because the culture changed, more and more people had opportunities to have power. Different practices were allowed to be legal that had not been legal before. I mean, it included divorce. Yeah. Divorce, birth control, abortion, um intermar- interracial marriage. All of that developed as legal in the sixties and seventies. Right. Okay. And so, and then elections, because more and more people get the vote, more and more different kinds of people get elected. So you might say the culture changed first, the democracy God. ratified. The changes, yeah. Okay.
0: So, so the problem was that. So prior to the sixties, Christianity and democracy were in lockstep together. That's right. Okay. And then the, as culture, they understood it, as right. They understood it. Right, 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 right. Their, their vision of Christianity. Yeah so christianity and their christianity and democracy were in lockstep together and then culture changed and then that started to change government and that started to change policy and that started to change the face of the of lawmakers and so on and then because of that there is the turn on democracy that we are seeing
1: that's what i'm saying and, okay and- A way to think about it in terms of Christian mission, think about it like this. When culture started changing, sensitive pastors and evangelists and stuff, they saw it and they were worried about it. People like Billy Graham. Yes. So so what was the strategy? Let's preach massive crusades and convert America back to Jesus. The strategy was evangelism and missions and church stuff
0: and culture change culture,
1: culture. Yeah. change culture let's change culture let's uh, make our own schlocky movies and our own awful music and,
0: <laughs> and you know let's, let's
1: do all that stuff right you know yes uh, or maybe we tell a story that all of this is the beginning of the end the apocalypse is coming and Jesus is coming back we'll tell that story maybe we'll do that right and make schlocky movies about that right our own yes. Christian movies um cultural and evangelistic strategies and i i came into christianity in the late 70s when that was the strategy like man we're going to evangelize all of our friends tell them about jesus and and we're going to send some people out to hollywood to make some culture and, and and nashville to make some christian music and stuff what if what if you say that the overall result of that was fail it didn't work mm. and then and then you realize that and you say we a cultural strategy and there were always people attempting to do a cultural strategy still are people but then there was a, a group that said no nah, what we need what we need is a political strategy and so as you know even as early as the Barry Goldwater campaign in 64 or the Nixon campaign in 68 and certainly by Reagan the idea of bringing the Republican Party and the conservative Christians especially of the south together was the strategy and this is the Christian right and so the idea is A marriage, again, a new marriage between church and state, that is evangelicalism, fundamentalism, conservative Catholicism, get into bed with the Republican Party, get the right people elected, take America back that way. Now, if you're old enough, you've heard of, you know, you remember people like Jerry Falwell and Pat Roberts and all the stuff they were doing, right? Yeah. That was a political strategy, but that was a political strategy within democracy. Okay. What if you conclude that even that strategy has failed? Mm-hmm. Uh, the culture keeps changing, and you you always have things to be alarmed about. You don't like what the college teachers are teaching. You don't like what the kids are learning in school, or you don't like what Hollywood is producing, or you don't like whenever Democrats are in charge, or whatever. And so, so, and then Barack Obama gets elected, and I really think that's important.
0: Okay, the fact is, that, is it because he's black, or is it? Yeah. Beca- okay, so it's because of the color of his skin. I think so. And it's because of his kind of ideological background and and underpinnings as well.
1: I mean, well, I think it's the perceived exoticism of a man named Barack Hussein Obama being elected president of the United States. Um, Sure. And the color of his skin, his, I mean, the community organizing background. I mean, he was actually very much a moderate, Yes, but I think he was a huge shock to the to the white American conservative mindset. And Mm -hmm. I think that helps to explain why of all the people the Republicans could have picked to be their next candidate, they went with Trump. Yes. Because he embodied visceral outrage at Obama and that anybody like Obama could ever have been sitting in the White House.
0: So it was kind of a a, this this horror that someone named Barack Hussein Obama with that with, with the color of his skin and his ethnic background and being, being at the highest pinnacle of power in the United States. What does that suddenly say about us as a country? What does that say about our system?
1: Yeah. Uh, and what I think what it said to a lot of people is we're losing control. This is really getting out of control. Okay. Um, and, and all the atrocious resurgence of open racism and stuff, um, uh, and you know, so that a big part of the story is race. This whole story could be, could be telescoped to be about race. And we'd have a very intelligent conversation that would explain a lot. Mm. One way to one way it has been said by some historians is all the moral value stuff like about abortion and sex is a cover for racial panic.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: and I think to some extent it is. Um, and you go back to Brown versus board of education, 1954, you're going to send our kids to school with them. I mean, in a sense, you might say that the counter-revolution, the conservative authoritarian reactionary counter-revolution begins with 1954, but it certainly begins later during the Civil Rights Movement and the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act of 64 and 65. So race is a huge part of the story. But but I don't want to simply dismiss decent, good-hearted folks looking around and, and all of a sudden half the people around them are getting divorced and... And uh, and their people are burning their draft cards and um, all of it, the whole thing of the 60s and early 70s, all the social changes. Right. Yeah. All of that did unnerve people. And it was easily manipulated by people who had other kinds of political agendas as well. Right. But I see I see like one reason why people bought the big lie of of the Trump. You know, I couldn't have lost a fair election in 2020. It's because there's a significant chunk of people who are having a very difficult time believing that they live in a culture in which people of the other side's values can consistently win elections or get into positions of power.
0: I'm just hearing the the shrill voices of, of conservatives in my life <laughs> yeah. being like, um, you know, balking at the idea that race is kind of central to this, and they would they would say, I think I am not in any way racist. I support the the civil rights movement. I valorize MLK. I, um, I don't have a problem at all with the color of Barack Obama's skin. I have a problem with his policy and what he represents for, they would say, for me personally, this has nothing to do with race. What would you tell that person listening to this right now?
1: Um, if that's true, great.
0: Perfect. Yeah. Right.
1: If, if that's true, great. Let's demonstrate that by uh, how you talk about and how you think about it and how you vote on issues related to race. Um, show So show me, show us. Yes. Right? Um, I think that open racism was so delegitimized during the 60s and 70s by the civil rights movement and by, I mean, the fact that the government made it federal policy, anti-racism became federal policy in some significant ways. You're not allowed to discriminate. Um in public accommodations or in schools or anywhere else. So open racism was driven underground. But a lot of what we see in the darker corners of the internet now or or in the comments of some politicians and so on. Yes. Man, it's just very thinly veiled racism.
0: It it's horrifying. And Right. I, I like, mean if it
1: is thinly veiled, right? You yes. Know?
0: I I I like the phrase. I forget which um Jewish activists use this example, but I think it, to to describe anti-Semitism. But I think it's accurate for racism as just just in general. It's like the herpes simplex virus, where it can go latent and it can go invisible, and then external pressures will happen, and then there is an outbreak of it. And it's, yeah. and it's one of those things that we just constantly have to be aware of that, you know, it's like the it's like anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. They've been around for centuries and under certain conditions of social pressure or under certain, you know, points of low trust and war and and et cetera. Then this this virus of anti-Semitism will have an outbreak. It's the it's same with it's the same with racism, I think. Um, Yeah. yeah. Um,
1: If, say, one of the political parties, especially if the Democratic Party, were to put forward a presidential or vice presidential nominee who was Jewish in, say, 2024, for whatever reason, you know that anti-Semitism would be stoked and would be at play in in the way people reacted to that candidate.
0: Absolutely. Yes. Right. Absolutely.
1: Um, And, and... Uh, racism will be at play if if Kamala Harris is the nominee, or even if she continues to be the vice president as the nominee for vice president again. Right. Yes. So so racism hasn't gone away. Um, but it, but it's just back to connect to the to the larger thesis of of the book. Reactionary is a word that people should think about, and I analyze it in the book. To be a reactionary is to be fiercely opposed in principle to major cultural developments such that your posture hardens into a resolute resistance to pretty much anything new okay and if reactionary if reactionary spirit like that hardens it in a community it makes that community the ultimate foot-dragging community on what most of us would consider social progress and i think that's a very fair description of conservative christianity since the 1960s the ultimate reaction you're a community right
0: yes uh, always having to be dragged screaming into <laughs> into you know civil rights into social progress into like gay rights you know gay um it it's so funny to me now to see so many conservative and this is not unanimous whatsoever in conservative spaces at all but it's almost like so many there are a lot of conservatives I know who are who are now who have been dragged kind of against their will over their finish li- over the finish line and then just not acknowledge that it was ever an issue. <laughs> right, right. Right. Just not acknowledge that it was that that was not the one of the biggest political cultural battles of the past 30 years, just not acknowledge that at all and just be like, yeah, you know, gay people, they're fine. Let them get married. And now it's transition to now, now that animus is being put on trans people.
1: Right. How about if we argue that every one of those losses where people have to, they have to acknowledge they've lost every one of those losses leaves a layer of resentment that is easily activated, Right absolutely Um, you know once again we lost once again we lost once again what we firmly believed has been our the elites in society or the government has told us we're not allowed to believe this anymore do this anymore once again we've lost and so that hostility is able to easily be transferred to a different target right yes Um, you know so reactionary reactionary spirit i argue in the book that that's just not a good enough political ethic for anybody and certainly not for Christians that Jesus was hardly a reactionary, right? Um, It it doesn't fit. Um, And then authoritarian means we know the truth. We know who's supposed to be in charge. We need to seize back power or have our guy seize back power and, and bring order out of chaos again, make things right again. And democracy, if we can win, great. But if we can't win, well, maybe we Maybe we rush the Capitol on January 6th and hang Mike Pence, you know? uh, So so I think the reactionary spirit has been with conservative Christians, at least since the 60s. The authoritarianism, where we're willing to consider radical, non-democratic means or even outright subversion of democracy, that feels relatively more new, which is why I wrote the book, because it feels more like a threat to democracy itself.
0: What do you argue... To your fellow Christians, what is your argument for why they should defend democracy despite the disappointing culture that many of them feel like they are living in right now?
1: And I do try to communicate empathy for that sense of disappointment. And it sounds like you heard it, like you got it, right? You know, I got it's there. It. Yeah,
0: I I didn't get it before. <laughs> this book, but I got it reading. Yeah. I think that's my biggest takeaway. Right. And I'm not done with your book yet, but I think that's my biggest takeaway right now of, oh, I get it now in a way that I just kind of didn't have patience for earlier.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that can help. That can help. Um, because we want to be able to understand people, even if we don't agree with them. Right. Yes. I argue that democracy over the centuries of human experience is is the best available political system that has ever been developed um it's not perfect but it's certainly better than authoritarian governments and I go through you know fascist and nationalist populist and dictatorships and theocracies there is a reason why the majority of the world has chosen to move in the direction of democracy it's better um it's more fair it provides um, more protections against government overreach. It provides more protections for individuals to have their rights respected. It provides the best context for people to share in the decisions that affect their own lives. It tends to have better outcomes in terms of uh, like economic life and um, political decision making It's just better. So one reason to defend democracy is because it's a system that works better and, and you don't have to be persuaded of that when you're under the thumb of a dictator. It's like, we need to remember what it's like and study some history to so remember what it's like when, or or just study like what, you know, if you oppose Putin, you end up in jail or dead out of a window or something. Is that really what we want? You know, um, you can lose the taste for democracy if you're unhappy with with its results. One antidote is to study authoritarianism to see what that's really like, yes. right? A little bit of empathy for our neighbors. You know, part of what democracy does is to protect the rights of minorities, racial minorities, uh, religious minorities, lifestyle minorities. Um, As a little bit of golden rule, what if it were you? What if it were your child? Wouldn't you like to have those rights respected if it were you? Um, So do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. It's, It's just about having some sympathy for people putting the shoe on the other foot. So it's a system that works better. It's been proven to work better. Um, it's more fair, it's more just. It can be, as an expression of love of our neighbors, we ought to support a well-functioning democracy. Um, I also appeal to resources in Christian tradition, including some of the traditions that I named earlier, like the dissenting Baptist and Anabaptists of the 17th and 18th century. I talk about the, the black resistance pro-democratic tradition that has been fighting for a real democracy in this country for hundreds of years. And I mentioned the idea of covenant, a covenant, a country. It doesn't have to be thin liberalism. It can be a country as a covenant community in which everybody gets a gets a place at the table. Everybody, everybody matters. So a covenantal vision, I think, is one that is part of our tradition that has been lost, and I call for it to be renewed. So I say basically our own scriptural and traditional resources, uh, together with basic study of political history, and caring for the well-being of our neighbors should make us pro-democratic.
0: Talk some a bit more about that covenantal vision. What what is that in practice?
1: Um, the idea is, and actually, I'm able to quote some political documents where the language is explicit, including like the Massachusetts Constitution says, "We the people are making a covenant today."
0: Mm. Now it's is so the, interesting. now is the is the covenantal vision that that you're describing as kind of a as as kind of filling the gap that is filling filling in the holes that thin democracy cannot satisfy. I think
1: that's right. And it was there before Locke. The okay. covenantal vision was there before modern liberal theory.
0: And is this an exclusively Christian thing or is it kind of a thing no. that can embrace many yeah. traditions and many religions?
1: yes um martin luther king and now echoed by his successor at ebenezer baptist church senator warnock our senator here has talked about a new democratic covenant um in which we understand that every american is a participant in a sacred agreement of you might say a citizenship agreement what makes it sacred is because there's something sacred even holy about caring for the well-being of a community. Mm. And you can have a religious reference to that or not. You know, you could be promising to God or just promising to your neighbor to, for example, I promise to seek your well-being. I, I promise to care about that your child be educated at a decent school. Mm. Um, I promise to care that you get health care when you be able to get health care when you need it. Um, I promise to care that there's a social safety net available if you should fall into poverty or, or uh, medical distress. So so the idea of a community committed to the well-being of one another, that's a lot richer than, I just want the government to protect me when somebody wants to break into my house. See how, how it's much richer than that? It's much much more other-centered. And then I also talk in the book about People who hold public office have special covenant responsibilities because of the special power that they have. And one way they signal that is like when they take an oath, I hereby solemnly swear, you know, you know, like to, to fulfill the uh, obligations of the Constitution. By the way, that was one problem with Donald Trump. He had no covenantal sense at all. Mm. He, he never kept covenants with wives or with business partners, let alone with citizens. Mm. So... Covenant is a sacred promise that you might say that limits your freedom because in that sense because you choose to commit to the well-being of the whole community so in one way the reason I won't drive 100 miles an hour on the interstate here is not just because I might get arrested it's also because I'm in relationship with every other car on that highway what I do affects them if I drive recklessly somebody might die so I want to develop more and I'm glad to be asked Covenant it's like a web of commitments that we have to each other because we are bound to each other in community. That's covenant.
0: Mm. This this reminds me of Jonathan Raush's book, The Constitution of Knowledge, which I don't know if you're familiar with it or not, no. but it it's excellent. And I've done several interviews with Jonathan on this show. And what he are he argues for something like this about knowledge acquisition, that there is a constitution that of of rules and norms that we must hold sacred in order for pluralism to work and in order for this democracy to work and this this rhymes with that 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 there must be this this sacred um thing of 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 covenant with others who aren't like us that transcend that that can transcend our our kind of tribal differences.
1: Right. Either our individual preferences or our tribal differences. That's right. And that gives me a chance to say that everybody who writes about democracy says it is a culture before it is a set of laws. Okay. And that culture has norms. And those those norms must be protected. So, for example, If a presidential candidate says this election was rigged, and says it repeatedly, there's probably not a law against that,
0: or does not commit to a to a peaceful transfer of power. Doesn't yes,
1: there may not be a law against that rhetoric, but it is a crushing blow to democratic norms.
0: You know it that that I think is what violates
1: covenant. It violates covenant. I, I
0: I think that's what actually has maybe disturbed me the most about the Trump presidency is, I don't think I realized when, how old was I? I was 27, 26. I was in my 20s. I was in my late 20s um, when he got elected. And I don't think I understood how much of our culture and how much of our like core institutions are predicated on norms. That's right. That's that right. So right. I I didn't get that. I didn't get that. And say, and it's same with, with all the other, it, it's the same with all the other things that we hold dear, like free speech. Free speech is first a culture. Right. And secondarily, you know, with important limitations, as you point out in your book, but, um, free, it, it is first a culture and then it is law. And I don't Think I adequately grasped, like the degree to how fragile our institutions are because they're based on these norms, and then you can get someone who who is a a complete, um, completely amoral person, not just immoral but amoral, yep. who who lies. For the sake of lying, right, and just trashes the the norms and the havoc that that causes, and so yeah, no, I'm I'm what you're saying is totally landing for me. And the other thing that this is bringing up for me is the con. A lot of the a lot of the reactionaries that I keep an eye on, Ben Shapiro. A lot mm-hmm. of the, the people in the reactionary right online, the content creators, all that. There's a way in which they are right, which is if a culture does not have that u- a, a unifying ethos and commitment, then it there's going to be dysfunction. But their answer to it is profoundly wrong. The answer should be the covenantal uh, commitment that you're describing. It is not. The answer is not to a to a uh, theocracy. The answer is not a theocracy or the cultural dominance of Christianity.
1: Right because that is an answer that excludes a massive part of the population. Yeah, and the,
0: and the pluralism the pluralism horse is not going back in the barn.
1: <laughs> right. The only way you can do that is through oppression.
0: Yes. And outright genocide.
1: And that is a history that we don't want to repeat. I wish that liberal political and cultural leaders were more articulate in in presenting this covenantal vision that i'm describing because people do most people want more of a vision than i just want the people to leave me alone i mean you know and uh so so i think a covenantal vision of the common good of the well-being of all every so often democratic politicians will say the reason i'm the reason i want this tax reform is because or but a lot of times it's techno-speak, technocratic-speak, and not really values-speak. You know, um, These are values that are at stake here. Um, so, I mean, this may be a place to, to lay in this conversation, too. I'm making a values-based argument for democracy and its norms to be defended by Christians. It's not a secular argument. It's not just a kind of a purely liberal argument. It is a Christian values-based argument, but it's also an argument that, that takes seriously the the way that democracy and religion were arranged, the relationship from the very beginning of this country, it was wise. It reflected a careful balancing of values, and there are people wanting to blow right through that right now in their panic, and I think they have to be resolutely opposed. Well, they have to be opposed with a vision that is contrary and not just kind of criticism. They need There needs to be a vision, and hopefully this book helps to offer that.
0: I hope so too. The book is called Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies. I strongly encourage everyone to buy it. It is out now. Um, Buy multiple copies of it. Throw it through your friends' windows at 3 Uh, (laughs) a.m. That'd
1: be very good use of the book. (laughs) (laughs) And uh,
0: if you are a Christian, please read it. If you are not a Christian, please read it. If you are not a Christian like me, but has great respect for... Christian tradition and, um, and values multiculturalism and is concerned about the state of the world, then I think you will learn a lot of it. Uh, You will learn a lot from it, uh, just as I did. So David Gushy, where can people find you if they want to check out your work?
1: Uh, I'm on Substack, uh, under David P. Gushy and on, uh, I have a website, David P. Gushy. It helps to have a really unique name. All you got to do is put your name out there and then people can find you. Uh D P Gushy on the social media uh outlets.
0: But. Perfect. Perfect. Yep. Awesome. Yeah, you're a fellow Substack pervert. That's how you um that's how I <laughs> that's how I got you you got on my radar again. Um all right. Well that is it for this show. The music is by 117. The theme song is called Wild. You can find it on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. This show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long, and it is made possible by my paying subscribers at sacredtension.substack.com. And as always, thanks for listening, and stay curious.